it meant a little bit more to me because it's years 2020 and 2021, right? This is the beginning of the uh, housing demographic patch that I've always talked about. Household formations getting better. Balance sheets, that's been a big topic of mine over the years. Household balance sheets just look a lot better this time. Loan quality is much better. There's not going to be a housing crash. So let's take them all out. Let's take the housing bubble boys out. Let's take the extreme right wing, left wing bears, whatever it's whatever is left in this society. Let's document this. So 100 years from now, when they look back and go, well, who kind of didn't think this was going to happen? And that's why the historian in me made sure to document this over and over and be repetitive. Repetitive is very boring. It's not sexy, but it's the right way to do economics. Hi, Housing News listeners. This is Alcina Lloyd, and I'm the producer of this weekly podcast, which is a proud member of the Industry Syndicate. You just heard a quote from today's guest, Logan Motoshami, Housing Wire's lead analyst. In this episode, Logan discusses the economic achievements made by the housing market despite impacts from the COVID-19 pandemic. Additionally, he dives into his most recent HW Plus article that asks, should Americans buy a home in a super hot housing market? The article is a part of HousingWire's HW Plus premium subscription service and can be accessed at housingwire.com. Thank you for listening, and here's episode four of season six of the Housing News Podcast. Welcome, everyone. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire, with the latest episode of our Housing News Podcast. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, which is our very own lead analyst, Logan Motoshami. Logan, welcome. It's good to be here. Great to be here. And, you know, unlike some of uh, my podcast guests, I know you fairly well. We work together. And um, so this will be this will be fun. Uh, We're going to start out the uh, way I ask everyone uh, the way we start all of these, which is how did you get into this business? Right. But with you, it's a little bit more complicated because, you know, really, which business are we talking about? Uh, You are a lead analyst, but uh, that's informed by your years of being a mortgage loan officer. So I would love to understand the story of how you got started in the mortgage business, and then how that led to your really your economic work. Well, my original plan was to actually be a high school basketball coach in the previous century and to teach history as well. Um, in 1996, I got into the stock market. Somebody thought, you know, it, it might be a good area for me. And then my family's had their own mortgage company since 1987. So uh, I got into both in 1996, uh, been doing mortgages as a, as a loan officer since uh, 2004. And then about in 2010, um, Somebody from Benzinga, Jason Resnick, actually saw me on Facebook, and and I was debating uh, economics with a CNBC anchor and decided, would you like to write about political economics? I'm like, no, I I think I could write about real estate, though, because, you know, I I think that I could provide some information there. One thing led to another. I created my own blog, and then after, you know, 10 years, you know, just started to become more of a, a data analyst, not just for housing, but for, for all economics. Uh, around about 2015, 2016, I, I, I changed it up and retired from the mortgage industry last year. So basically all I do is look at charts now for the rest of my life. Well, we appreciate the work that you do there. And, and really, I just have to back up a little bit and say, you know, you, uh, you've been a contributor at HousingWire for years. Um, and last year, you know, some 
obviously we were confronted with a really different kind of economic uh, conditions coming down with the with the COVID vaccine and your economic work really took on, I think, even more importance. And last year, you wrote something on April 7th um, about the uh, America's back model. Before that, you talked about the chaos theory and housing. I would love for you to kind of recap what you saw and what what made you um, really alone among economists to really to really see that we were going to have a recovery faster than some other people thought. Well, you know, my my prize, even though people know me for housing, is really tra- tracking economic cycles. I think the world has become almost like a professional grifter area with all these social media sites. And I didn't see information being valid. I saw ideological takes, whether they're right-wing, left-wing, stock traders, ideological economic people. So I said to myself, no matter what happens, priority number one is to talk about the economic recession and expansion. So I created this six recession flag model to kind of give people a guideline. And, And the most unique thing happened is that the economic data itself toward the end of you know, 2019 was getting better. The first two months of 2020, uh, uh, data was getting actually much better than than even I thought. But, in, you know, the chaos theory, when I wrote that in February, uh, was that, you know, if this event happens, kind of, you know, if, if, if COVID actually comes, there's nothing you can do about this. You know, the economy is going to shut down. We're going to go into recession. Bond market's going to go lower. Uh, stock market's going to go down. But don't overreact, right? And there's my kind of theme in the macroeconomic world is this is not 2008. You don't want to get into 2008 mode. And what I've seen is that everyone, whether it be housing, stock market, labor economists, everybody got stuck in 2008 mode. So about a few weeks into the into the crisis, I thought, okay, let's let's create this model. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. You can run and scream back in the villages while the demons come, or you could confront it head on. So I designed a few things for people to track. I gave a few dates as well. I think that was more important, you know, that, you know, by May 18th, we should be stabilized. And a lot of the reaction to COVID was fear, right? You know, the the hoarding of toilet paper, the, the uh, you know, hoarding of water and bread and, and people panicking. Naturally, of course, it's a it's, I mean, in our recent modern day history, it's it's our first global pandemic. And a lot of people, again, stuck in 2008 mode. Housing's going to crash 70%. Unemployment's going to go to 30%. All these oppressions. So I said, let's do this the correct way. Let's give people dates, things to track, and convince them that they have to go with it, right? When the data gets better, because what I saw in the previous expansion is that the data was getting better, but the ideological voices took over. So at that point, I thought, let's do it this way. Let's just give people these few things to track and then piece by piece, month by month, week by week, you know, let's let's show them all the way to the point to when we could shut the model off. And that came in December 9th of last year. The last thing was the 10-year yield needed to get to about 1% uh, in 2020, and it did. And then the final nail in the coffin was that we need to create a range on the 10-year yield between 1.33 and 1.60. And by that time, everybody who is a functioning human being will realize that the depression that had happened, the recession is over, and now we're going into this expansion. Um, And it meant a little bit more to me because it's years 2020. 
in 2021, right? This is the beginning of the uh, housing demographic patch that I've always talked about. Household formations getting better. Balance sheets, that's been a big topic of mine over the years. Household balance sheets just look a lot better this time. Loan quality is much better. There's not going to be a housing crash. So let's take them all out. Let's take the housing bubble boys out. Let's take the extreme right-wing, left-wing bears, whatever it's whatever is left in this society. Let's document this. So 100 years from now, when they look back and go, well, who kind of didn't think this was going to happen? And that's why the historian in me made sure to document this over and over and be repetitive. Repetitive is very boring. It's not sexy, but it's the right way to do economics. And I think that was, you know, forever, I think that that's my work right there, because that was a once in a lifetime event and uh, documenting it and seeing it go through fruition and then getting to the 10-year yield at 160 uh, this year was was just, I don't think I'll ever be able to replace that because the opportunity hopefully never happens again uh, for our country. Now, you know, uh, that's a great point. I think that, you know, if people just started, um, if their introduction to you was this year or, or 2020, they might just think, well, oh, you're just a, you're always on the positive. You always see it growing. But um, that really comes from your demographic you know, study and and in the years, you know, up until 2020 and 2019, you weren't you weren't saying that. So it's not just that you're always seeing the market go up. You're not one of those people who are like, oh, buy now, buy now, buy now. So so explain kind of what the I, demographics I, tell you. Yeah, it, it's funny. I I have a recession model. In the, the you know the basic English language is if somebody has a recession model, they cannot be perma anything. But in the society that we live in, people are trying to get attention, right? And my kind of work is very boring. Right? It's not very, it's just basically looking at data and the numbers itself. So three of my six recession flags were actually crossed off already. So um, I, I think the big mistake everyone made is that people assumed we were going into a recession in mid-2019. And then, uh, I mean, just this, just the basic ability to visually see data and have the literacy to read, you can see that the data was getting better. I think that's where a lot of people whiffed because they couldn't acknowledge the fact that the economic data was getting better, especially the first two months of 2020. I mean, the leading economic index was at an all-time high in February. But because of the violent nature of COVID, uh, everybody just went into their doom and gloom phase. And it was just, it was, it was such an opportunity, right? It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I think this is this is I'm never gonna get this chance again. You have to get it right. So you have to show people a pathway to walk. You have to explain why. It's not the actual answer itself, right? It is the why factor in explaining why. And for housing, it was really simple. You, you ran into the best housing demographic patch ever recorded in history, coming from the weakest housing recovery ever recorded in history with sub 4% mortgage rates, with over 133 million people still working. No, housing was never going to crash. The housing bubble boys are a conspiracy theory, gypsy cult running around every day saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. So we had to take these people down. And it's historic, right? 2020 is here, 2021 is here, it's over, right? The, 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 the worst case scenario that people had hoped for and talked about last year is over. And for the rest of their lives, they have to live with that because they chose to talk about that on whatever YouTube or social media, whatever it is, that's the way they went. Not here, not what we did in Housing Wire. No, I, I really think that's an interesting point because really before I started uh, reading you, I guess I didn't follow the same people on Twitter. And so I just didn't realize there was this whole 
you know, um, industry of people who that, you know, their job is uh, how they make money is telling people about housing is about to crash. But I know I've told you before, I mean, that has been a search term since I have started at HousingWire. And I started in 2013. And over the last five years, especially, it's like, when will housing crash? Housing crash twenty whatever the whatever the date is, right? Twenty nineteen. It's, it's a doom. It's a doomsday cult, and most of these people are what I call anti-central bank fanatics. They're gold bugs. They're people that you know the dollar is going to collapse. I mean, these are the great American bears of our lifetime, right? And they cannot change. Why? Because they're old, right? And when you're old. You're stuck in your ways until you die. So that's, I, I mean, I literally say this. These people walk the afterlife, no ears, no tongues, no eyes, screaming that America is going to crash. And this is why my theme is that all American bears have failed since 1790. This time we're documenting them. So their children and their grandchildren could say, yeah, dad was crazy. Grandma was nuts, you know? And then history will go on in itself because we've had people like this throughout history. This is not the first, you know, every, every decade, every 40, 30 years, always people that think America's like this empire, like, you know, the British Empire, the Roman Empire. These are Dungeons and Dragon kids who've never grown up. So, but there's a way you can actually show people that they're, I, I actually don't even believe they believe this, right? I would say that these people are long stocks. Most of them, they, if they really believe that, you know, America was going to collapse, like they, they, they wouldn't be. So it's more of a grifting. So I don't, I think I'm unique in that sense where we specifically want to go after this group. And this was a time where everyone was all in. And then within five or six weeks, you know, if you look at the leading economic index, it bottomed out in April. And then it's been rising ever since, right? And, you know, 100 years from now, hopefully they go back and they think, wow, there were some people that said demographics do matter. Credit matters. Balance sheets matter. United States of America's currency is the king dollar. You know, there's a lot of things that are historic that we look back in this period in time. And it was just it was just to me, it was like a gift. Right. You know, you have to be, you have to get it. You have to knock it out of the park. And explaining the why factor is always the most important thing for me. Well, you know, it was important for us. Um, and the reason that we wanted to bring you on as lead analyst was really, you know, people are making decisions, big decisions based on the information that they get. Um, we hope they come to Housing Wire to get that information. They're definitely going to get better information than, you know, their their aunt or the crazy person on Twitter or whatever. And and you've you've mentioned this that, you know, people and, and we still get this, is should people buy a house? You know, is this the right time to buy a house? But also, you know, the fact that uh, people might have uh, held their money. And now, you know, like it, the housing prices, you know, just went up. So it, it, it would be a sad day if people were like, oh, it's going to crash. I better not buy a house. Yeah. It, you know, it's for me, one of the one of the great things that I saw in 2020 was that, you know, people always say, should you buy a house? Is housing is this. It's why, why there, there's a conceptual theory that why would you buy a house if it's going to drop 10, 20, 30 percent? You would buy that. People don't operate that way. Gypsy grifty cults operate that way, right? You know, they're, oh, no, why would you buy? I mean, the bubble boys, if you believe in the conceptual theory of a bubble, they need now. Home prices really have, have gone up almost 80% since the interim low in 2012. They need an 80% crash in a calendar year to warrant all the trolling of the United States of America, that their lives are based on this almost this, this fairy tale that one day, a lot of people who are doing well are going to sell you their homes at an 80% discount. This is a cult. This is what happens when you believe in a cult. Now, I again believe that they are not, they don't believe this. They're just professional grifters, but it's, they've been wrong for so long. So naturally, of course, 
here's COVID. Oh my God, this will be my cover. Now housing is going to crash. And for the American people, after six weeks, to look the demon in the eye and say, no, I've got my job, rates are low, I'm buying a house. Talk about an economic victory against some of the greatest American bearers that we have seen in our lifetime. People went and lived, right? They bought homes. They're having children. They're doing things that they normally do. There was just a, about a six-week, okay, everybody pause. What's going on here? Hey, and more Americans, and this is why I've always, I've always stressed this, more Americans bought homes with mortgages in 2020 and 2021 than any period from 2008 to 2019. Demographics are a little bit better. I don't believe in a housing boom or a credit boom or construction boom or anything, but they did it because they chose to live and not live in fear. And a lot of these people, they can't change. They have to go to their graves thinking that America's going to collapse, America's going to crash. And that's just who they are. So there has to be a counter, uh, you know, there has to be a light to the darkness, right? But you have to show people why. Why did this happen? Why, you know, and of course, getting ahead of people, you know, the whole forbearance crash bros, right, that we created last year, you know, it was designed knowing your enemy. What do the enemies do? They always move the goalposts to the next year. Well, Housing would crash if forbearance was, no, demand is stable. Even my counterparts in other countries, they go, why are Americans so obsessed about crashes when demand is stable? And that's the thing. The demand was stable and it picked up and you don't have a typically crash when demand is stable. So it was, it was beautiful to watch in 2020 and 2021. Well, it was it was really interesting to watch. And I know that, you know, we feel like this uh, information is so valuable to our audience because they're running mortgage businesses, whether they're in, you know, uh, real estate or in mortgage or in title or, or, or valuations or whatever. Like the answer to these questions is is their bread and butter. I mean, this is going to affect what they do. And so, you know, we felt like that was that was great. I would love to ask you, you know, your your background as a mortgage loan officer. How do you think that equips you differently to look at some of these things like like uh, the, the credit rating right now, of people who are buying houses? Like, how does that background really influence your economic work? I, th- I think debt structures is always number one in my book in terms of post 2020. One of the things that I've, I've noticed uh, that a lot of people thought lending is tight in America. No, it isn't. We still have very liberal lending standards, but we lend to the capacity to own the debt. And because you lend to the capacity to own the debt, all of the loans that were created that didn't matter if you had a 780 FICO score, two people working full times, even, even equity in the house, those were not good quality loans because the structure of the debt. Now, being in the industry, you could see this, uh, uh, how the debt is structured and what the consequences are. Post 2020, it never happened. Now, there was, there was a wide scale belief, even today, that, well, people with under 640 FICO scores aren't buying homes. Lending is too tight. No, it is the exact opposite. When you lend to the capacity to own the debt, you shouldn't see low FICO score Americans buying homes. Why? Because when you have a low FICO score, your cash flow is not good, which means that your credit card balances are too high or you miss payments. Typically, home buyers aren't in that category. So, the FICO scores, especially 620 and under, if you look at the originations, not much, right? Even 640 under, not much. What has happened is one of the things I've always talked about, homeowners have this benefit, fixed low debt costs versus rising wages. So one of the reasons why the housing bubble boys aren't going to get their 80% crash is that 
These households have never looked better in their lifetimes, right? They have fixed low debt costs, rising wages, cash flow is good, 740, 760, 780 FICO scores on all their originations are blown up higher. And that's the important thing. That's the quality of the credit balance sheets going into this crisis. That is another factor that in 2008, you didn't have that. In 2008, you know, prime age labor force had peaked in 2007. It was declining. That was a really big deal in economics. It doesn't get talked about still today. And then balance sheets needed to be deleveraged. We didn't have to deleverage anything, right? It was there. It was nested equity. It was, I mean, it, 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 I, I always say whistle at Home, homeowners balance sheets, because there is nothing more economically sexier than that. That thing is as good as it gets on a historical basis. Uh, and it is, again, the exact opposite of 2008. So a lot of people put their eggs in this basket since 2015, the silver tsunami, 2016, the bubble crash, whatever it is. And then in COVID was their last great hope, the collapse of America, right? The collapse of housing, the dollar, and it didn't happen. And the way we recovered, so fast, right? The way we got the 10-year yield at 1% in 2020, the year, the way we got the bond market to rise up, and it is a historical victory for the United States of America and its people and a damaging, self-destruction, self-destructive mindset of some of the greatest fanatical American bears we'll ever see in our lifetime. And here's a brief word from our sponsor. At Sidus AMC, we're proud to partner with the most respected brands in the industry to help them identify and capture opportunities across the life cycle of their real estate finance activity. From origination support to new and seasoned loan underwriting to valuations and brokerage services and everything in between, we're leveraging innovative technologies and expert-led services to help build more efficient, effective, and agile businesses. So whatever your opportunity might be, Sidus AMC is here to help you realize it. To learn more, visit our website at sidusamc.com slash HousingWire. Your, your passion for the subject comes through your enthusiasm and your uh, optimism, which is, you know, it was really great to see last year and, and great that it was founded. Not just That's not just your personality. You're not just like, hey, I just love to be positive. You were looking at, at indicators. So let's look at one of those right now, which is demographics is one of the things, is one of the hallmarks of your work, of, of what you're looking at to predict what's happening next. So tell us why 2020, 2020 to 2024 is so unique and, and why that informed your whole model. So if economics is demographics and productivity, then housing economics is really driven by demographics and mortgage rates. So coming from the weakest housing recovery ever, right? You know, prime age labor force peaked in 2007 and declined. Household formation has to work itself up. And it's years 2020 to 2024 that I talked about two things should happen only then, which was really hard to convince people uh, in the last uh, uh, nine years that this was going to be the case. Housing starts will never start a year at 1.5 million because demand will never warrant it. So this is Today, my probably biggest disagreement with every economist and every analyst is that people think we don't build enough homes. Builders only build off of their own demand curve. It was the weakest new home sales cycle ever recorded in history. 2013 was a miss. 2014 was a miss. 2015 missed estimates. 2018, we had a supply spike. The builder said it was the worst quarter since the great financial crisis. There was not only an 82% crash in new home sales, we had the weakest recovery. But come years 2020, you got a little bit more buyers. Right? You have a little bit more demographic buyers than you had in the past. So that should kick in and demand should pick up a little bit. 
That's it. There's no credit boom. There's nothing. We just get a little bit more buyers coming in. So the demand should be there. It should be stable. This is why I use the term replacement demand, stable demand. If I use the word boom, I need to show a credit boom. We don't have a credit boom. Look at the purchase application data from 2002 to 2005. Compare that to 2018 to 21. No, it's, it's not a credit boom. You just have people who just want to buy homes. That's it. That's all it is. These are people who make good money. So they have two choices. They either rent or they're homeless. So guess what? You're not going to be homeless and renting. Well, guess what? I, I could afford a house. I can own a home. And that's what it is. And part of the discussion in 2021, the reason why my tone has changed so much of saying this is the most unhealthiest housing market you know, I've seen since 28 to 2008, we have an inventory shortage. So when you have an inventory crunch like we do, it seems like demand is booming because we see these 30 bids, 40 bids, 50 bids, you know, for a house. That's only because the the supply is this low. It's not because demand is like booming crazy. And because of that, we have unhealthy price growth. And it's happening in a year that we should only be a little bit higher in existing home sales than last year. And for me, it's like guiding people to the moderation, right? Last year, I said, well, housing data went parabolic. It never goes parabolic, guys. Trust me. Well, you know, existing home sales are not trending at 6.7 million. Trust me on that. All it was was makeup demand. So we got to get sales back down to below 6.2 million. You know, uh, two months ago, I talked about, we're probably going to get a few prints under 5.84 million. I talked about it before the last existing home sales report. It didn't happen, but we're going to get that and we should be a little bit higher eventually all this wild economic data will find a base. And when we find that base, we'll work it off there. But the price gains that we're seeing to me are unwarranted because it's an inventory shortage, not because you know demand is just booming crazy. And that's why I say it's the most unhealthiest housing market because you know I talk about this, this period, if we get just five years or just 23% uh, annualized home price growth, that'd be great. We survived it because I'm worried about, guess what? You know, it was actually 2022 to 2023 that I was more worried that inventory would get to these levels. COVID-19 in itself has created an unnatural economic marketplace. Um, forbearance, of course, is coming down. We've already cut it in half. But naturally, if you had those no COVID in that situation, some of those would have been sellers. Some of it, it would have been a more fluid market. But mortgage rates have always been our stabilizer. Right when rates get over four percent, I know it, it seems low, but it's always stabilized prices. We don't have that now because of COVID. We have unbelievable economic data. If you look at the United States, of America, it just zoomed through this crisis, and the world is desperately trying to get their economies ready and going, but they can't catch up to us. So we have this really solid economic data, and we have low mortgage rates. So this is why it's very unhealthy because we have an unnatural economic event, and our economy is on fire. So naturally, the bond market should be higher, but the mortgage and mortgage rates should be higher. But even for myself, who is more bullish on the United States of America than anybody, more bearish on the bond market than everybody, I still have only capped my 10-year yield call in 2021 at 1.94%. Because again, we're dealing with the world economies now. And the United States is the only economic superpower really left. So we lead everyone out and everyone's going to have to come up and catch us or be more stabilized. And Europe can't, right? Because guess what? What does the United States of America have that a lot of other countries have? We've got young workers. We have young replacement workers. Prime age labor force growth, United States, next three decades, positive. China, no. Japan, no. Europe, no. Right? It's only us. And that doesn't change. Whatever you think of immigration and birth rates or everything, it's irrelevant to the fact that the millennials are big and so are Gen Z, right? 
So when baby boomers leave the workforce, right, and eventually they die, you have replacement workers, replacement consumers. It keeps things at bay. It isn't this booming uh, aspect, but it keeps things at bay where other countries, right, Europe really hasn't been able to grow itself because too old. They don't have a, 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 a really massive young demographic force to replace them. So that's our advantage besides the fact balance sheets are good. We have the reserve currency of the world. So yeah, it was just like COVID-19 versus the United States of America in my timeline. I have to defend my keep. This is it, right? This happened right at 2020. I'm like, wow, this is an opportunity. Show people why we're going to do this. Because if you can't show people, you can't explain why then you know you let the fanatics run around and just say just whatever uh, conspiracy theories they want. So you always want to be the detective, not the troll. That's one of my favorite uh, phrases that you say often in your in your stories. Be the detective, not the troll. And I think you've given people some good ways to do that for themselves. Um, so I'm going to come back to Gen Z. Uh, you mentioned Gen Z, but right now I want to I want to ask you something in that last bit that you were talking about, you mentioned low inventory. So if we have low inventory, why is it that home that home building is not the answer for our low inventory problem? Well, builders build off of their own demand, not the existing home sales market. That's, 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 that's the one thing I, I wrote about that uh, supply. You know, how do we create supply in 2021? Just to let people know that when rates rise, Right. And the builder supply picks up. We're already seeing, you know, I have always made a rule of thumb when monthly supply is under 4.3 months, life is very good for the builders. Why? Paper, rock, scissors, rates beat lumber always. Right. And you can see this. Like, I mean, legitimately, this was a, a very honest question. A lot of my trader friends are like, how are new home sales and housing starts going with lumber? Because the demand is there. Right. So think about for the new home sales market, they have to deal with all this input costs. You know, and they're still selling homes. Why? Because they've actually really benefited more. In the previous cycle, people always said, well, the builders are benefiting because there's low exist. Listen, the low, the low existing home sale inventory myth, if you haven't got it by now, it is a marketing line. From two, 2013 to 2019, whenever there's a missed sale, go to the videos, you say, there's just no homes to buy. We have record. No, there are plenty of homes to buy. Why? Because in 2020 and 2021, when total inventory levels hit all-time lows, we have more sales. So from 2013 to 2019, there was always homes to buy. Days on market was over 30 days. There was a, there was a more healthy market. Here, the builders just really took advantage because new home buyers are older, they're wealthier. You know, they they you know I just, I'm I'm going in. They're a mortgage buyer majority market, so they're going into buying those. Eventually, in time, when rates rise it'll impact them. And if supply gets too high, they're just not going to build enough, right? It's, a, it's an inefficient market because you're asking a small portion of the economy to build against this massive, massive existing home sale market, which is 141 million units. Uh, so we're going to get this, right? We're going to, we're, we're, we're not, we're, there's no catching up. Demand has to allow it. And we're already seeing supply creep up a little bit. So it's good. It's, I mean, it, there's nothing extremely terribly wrong about the new home sale market or housing starts, but you could already see some pressures coming in into the system. So that's where my fundamental belief has always been, which is different than everybody. Everybody says, you just got to build more homes. You just got to build more. Builders are like, hey man, it was the weakest new home sale cycle ever. We've, we've consistently missed estimates. The builder stocks were down over 30, 35, 40% in 2018 when mortgage rates get, got to 5%. They don't build when supply gets like that. So there is a 
real big disconnect, I think, from the academic world and the business world and, and maybe some analyst world. You're asking these people to do too much. Now, if you want to deficit finance, if you want the federal government to say, we're going to pour in a lot of money and we're going to build them, you guys just build them, we'll find labor or whatever, whatever needs to happen because construction productivity is terrible. I mean, it's just, it's the worst sector we have in the United States of America. Uh, if you want to pay them to build and they don't care, they just want to get paid. Uh, however you want to handle that, that will give you you know, when things get slowed down a bit, you'd still have building production, but we don't have that system in place. So don't hold your breath for that to, to, to come out anytime soon. Well, do you, um, you know, so lumber costs have been, you know, and actually uh, costs of all sorts of building materials, appliances, you know, we have a lot. Is, is that something you'd like to uh, uh, tell us about? Do you track those kind of things? Well, my whole theme on Twitter finance or my, my trader friends or macroeconomic friends is that watch out for the inflation playbook. And one of the things I do is I like to show a chart of inflation back in the Great Recession. You know, it, it bottomed out very low prices and then it had some really high percentage gains. But that was from like 2008 to 2012. Imagine the sharpest V-shaped recovery ever recorded in modern day history with a global pandemic that has shut off production levels to be fluid you're going to get some crazy prices, right? I mean, it's I, I put my money where the mouth is. I, I basically retired betting on inflation and taking back up again. In time, though, that should moderate. And we already see lumber prices coming down. It, 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 once the world starts producing normal again, especially here, uh, it, it'll work itself out. I don't believe we're just one of these fast-growing inflationary countries. Uh, so it, the inflationary data should slow down over time once production and everybody's working again. But short term, boy, you could see these really sharp uh, prices because well, it's like demand just came right back up. I mean, you know, uh, uh, so the production levels are not there, still not there, but they should be able to work themselves out in time. China is no longer a fast growing economy in the sense that the, their GDP rate of growth has been falling. Europe doesn't grow that much. We're leading everyone out of the recession, but even we have limits. So it's going to be really crazy. Like all economic data is going to be crazy until we 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 worked out all the extremes. But in time, inflation should calm down from what it is uh, because we just we we have the ability to produce enough goods and services when we're when the whole world is working at kind of a full capacity. Well, and um, this goes to my next question, which is: uh, you just wrote a. Uh an article this week for us on should you buy a home in a super hot housing market, which is right where we are. And we wanted, you know, you and I talked about this article and the, and the way we wanted to do this because we know that real estate agents are hearing this, lenders are hearing this, anyone involved in housing, people are asking, is this a top? Should I, should I not buy? Is this good? At the same time, there are people who are, you know, uh, feel like they missed out and feel like there's still room to go. So, you know, how did you, I thought you were very diplomatic in your answer to that. And, uh, but, but just, I'm just going to give it to you. Should people be buying right now? So this question is always asked and I've always hated the question because I honestly don't think people care. I don't think people care to experts because if they did, we had the greatest detrimental short-term event ever recorded in history. You had people screaming about prices falling 40%. You had people like Susie Orman, major following. Don't buy a house until December because home prices won't fall 50%. How do you get that number? What is she talking about? Americans 
I've always said this, are not soft people, right? They got right back up in six weeks and they bought homes. A home buyer to me is always ready. They know because you, you don't ask another adult, should you buy a house? You're a grown up. You know when to do it because you know your own finances better than anyone, better than a bank, better than Susie Orman, better than anyone else. You know this. So why are, Ameri- why are more Americans buying homes now than the previous cycle? Because there's a little bit more of them and they bought homes. And that I don't think is going to change. So you have to look at your own finance, right? And you think about, am I stretching myself? And then you have to make that answer because everyone else is buying homes when they're ready, right? They are. They don't care about you. They don't care about Susie or they don't care about me. You have to be an adult, right? And if you have to ask, like somebody on Twitter a few weeks ago said, should I buy a house? Do you think I'm ready? No, I don't think you're ready. And the person got all mad. Well, how do you know that? I don't, I don't, uh, you don't know me. Of course, I don't know you. You have a fake Twitter account and you have a picture of a, of a horse, of course. But if you're asking another grown man, you should buy a house, you're not ready. You sound like a renter to me. You sound like a lifetime renter to me, actually. And the guy got so upset, but it was true. If you have to ask another person permission or an idea to buy a house, you're not ready. Americans, when they're ready to buy a house, they're in, right? They look at that payment because that's what you're buying. That payment is what you're sleeping with at night every day. You're waking up in the morning. Fixed low debt costs, rising wages. That's why Americans buy homes, right? They're ready. If you have to ask someone, no. That's, that's, my, uh, that's why I've said that when people just, they don't, they don't really fall. I know the fear and greed people like think they do, but they don't. Because Americans aren't soft people. They're pretty much badasses and they showed themselves during 2020 and 2021, right? You know, so you have to look at your own finances because Americans don't care. They will buy that house before you do, right? Because they are ready. Because credit, even though it's liberal, you lend to the capacity to own a debt. And that means you don't have to worry about maybe an overextension or anything in that regards to where. You know, uh, we're just coming off a recession, so we're we're in it early in expansion. All that stuff is taken care of. But you have to look in the mirror and you say to yourself, "Am I ready to buy that payment?" That's it. Your kids are going to go to school. You're going to have dinner at your house. It's all it is is a house. It's the cost of shelter. If you're worried about home prices falling fifty, you're not ready. You should, in fact, I'm telling you, you should probably be a lifetime renter. Why would you want to live in a home when you're petrified about prices falling 50%? The quality of life goes down, right? And I just don't think people think like that because guess what? They did. You wouldn't have seen housing rebound so fast in 2020 and 2021. So I think that that works if you're you're a homeowner, an owner-occupier, but you're an investor. What what if you're an investor? What if you did well this last year? If you're an investor, you got to, again... Make your own decisions, right? I mean, I mean, I understand the investment side, I, but my economic work is primary residence, right? So everybody's trying to find an angle. Well, guess what? The people that told you housing was going to crash for seven years are telling you again housing's going to crash. So you either need to listen to better people, or you have to look at yourself and think maybe I need to find my own way to make that decision. You have to be responsible for your own decisions as an adult. So if you're an investor, if you're a homeowner, you have to figure out what is it. Like for myself, I have a real estate property, own it free and clear. Rental yield is very good. I haven't charged rent for my uh, tenants since March of 2020. I'm not going to charge that until 2022. But a lot of investors are actually like 
a rental property because of the rents they give and yields. So a lot of questions again, why aren't investors selling? Well, low interest rate environment, rents, the rental yield is good and rents are going to be about to go up. Rents, rent inflation is about to pick up big time, right? So they're seeing, well, bonds aren't going to do anything. Cash is, you know, nothing. I need rental yield to provide some sort of income. I think that's the one thing, if I could relate why investors don't sell, is that in a low interest rate environment, they like the rental yield uh, for that. So, uh, but if you're an investor trying to flip it, you got to find, you got to figure out your own strengths and weaknesses, right? Out here. So uh, again, if if people had this fear that housing was a crash, they would have all sold their properties in 2017, 18, 19, but they didn't for a reason, right? So there is there is a, a cinematic theatrical tone to housing always, uh, but most people have to figure out, you know, demand is stable during this period. Mortgage rates are low, so the concept of a 70 or 80 percent crash means that wealthy households or people with good incomes are going to sell you their house at an 80, 70, 60, 50% discounts with housing tenure at 10, it's probably gonna be 11 years after next year. Boy, that's a really tough sell, you know? And if 2020 and 2021 hasn't shown you that these are probably not the most talented people to talk about housing, then you have to look yourself in the mirror and think, hmm, maybe I've been duped. Right. <laughs> no, I appreciate that perspective. So let's talk, now I wanna talk about Gen Z because, um, you know, a lot of your work has been 2020 to 2024. Before there was ever COVID, you were looking at these outperforming years because this is when the millennials are going to hit their peak home buying years, which is later than in other generations. So I would love to for you to talk about, you know, it's not just that millennials were hitting that stride, but there were some really interesting things going on economically. And do you expect that same thing to happen when Gen Z? First of all, how big is Gen Z and, and what are you well, expecting with Gen Z? Gen Z is massive. They're bigger than Gen X. So, and uh, in theory, they're bigger than the boomers as well. But the reason I looked at 2020 to 2024 is because, again, my concern is home prices taking off, okay, during this period. Because why total inventory is the one thing I, I always emphasize. Take a look at inventory data. You know, we put that in that recent article with housing, right? Total inventory levels are falling. Purchase applications are rising. Right. So my concern was more about 2022 to 2023, getting these kind of low inventories, but it's happening now. So after this period, and the reason why we stop at this five year period is that you have to look at first time home buyers. Then you have to look at move up buyers, move down buyers, cash buyers and investors. You have to take the aggregate whole of all the demand and you have to worry about home prices taking off. So eventually, whatever happens in 2025, there are people there that want to buy homes. So you have to see how much damage is done during this very unique period of time. And it's once, it's, it, it, this is it. This is the once in a lifetime demographic little kick up. Uh, and uh, then you go back to, you know, it, there's still a lot of people, Gen Z, and they'll probably buy homes a little bit later than even millennials, but it's not this unique period. So uh, I don't look at 2025 yet because I have to see how much price damage is actually done, where's rates are, where are all these things. But you got a lot of you got a lot of people, and then again, you have a lot of again move up buyers, move down buyers, cash buyers, investors on top of that. But this year's 2020 is just this one historic event where you just get that extra kick in, and mortgage rates are all time low. So you you kind of just want to keep it simple. You have the best housing demographics ever, and mortgage rates are low. The two things that drive housing are the best ever in history. So the people that thought home sales would go below two million or three million and no, it doesn't work that way. 
So uh, I will cross into 2025 after I see what happens during this expansion. Again, I don't believe in a credit boom. Because I don't believe in a credit boom, I think inventory levels should pick up higher. Uh, uh, we had a lot of, lot of damage home price heat in the last uh, uh, eight or nine months. Hopefully that subsides and uh, we'll take it from there. But uh, there's a reason why I don't talk about 2025 because I have to see what happens during this five-year period. And so far, kind of the, my worst my worst mindset is that home prices take off and you can see what's happening. Well, thank you so much. I feel like we could talk for another two hours. In fact, if, if anyone here is on Clubhouse, they know that um, you can go for two, two and a half hours and, and still have just a lot of uh, really insightful things to say. So we're so thankful you share it with us. We love that you have decided to feature your work on Housing Wire. We feel like it's really important work. And, uh, you know, kudos to you for, for making the call last year that was just, you know, it, it was a bold move and you were very uh you were very optimistic. You were very confident in it because you knew you you had the backup. All of that came to pass. Really exciting and um, and just looking forward to what's next. Yes, and always believe in people who believe in economic models. If they can't show you why something's going to happen, then they're probably just grifting. And as always, be the detective, not the troll. In time, all of you should probably finish my sentences because I I'm very repetitive. And that's how economics is. It's kind of a repetitive trend lines until you see a breakout or something that happens. So we want all the jobs back by 20, by September of 2022. That's my goal. If uh, we should get all the jobs that were lost to COVID-19 by that time frame. And once we get that, we'll be off and going and we're all can walk the earth freely again. I love that. We look forward to that and look forward to uh, more articles in Hasmore. Everybody uh, look for those. Thank you so much, Logan. Pleasure. The Origins Mortgage Platform is a fully integrated digital solution that covers the entire lending life cycle from application to closing. With Origins, you'll have access to client configurable workflows and next level automation. Use Origins to replace your POS, LOS, and CRM mortgage staff with one single platform. Are using our modular capabilities? Integrate Origins anywhere in your tech stack where you need to make the biggest impact on your lending. Visit www.origins.com slash housingwire for more details. That's O-R-I-G-E-N-C-E dot com forward slash housingwire for details. Thank you for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please don't forget to give us feedback and rate us on iTunes. Until our next episode, make sure to check out Housing Wire Daily, a podcast dedicated to the hottest news stories across HW Media. The podcast is published each day and is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcast. Thanks for listening.